Hi, I'm Dean Fox, and welcome to my podcast, where I share my journey around the globe. Today, I'm broadcasting to you live from the United Kingdom, England, where it is currently 10 a.m. What time is it where you are? Let's take this journey together and let time zones intersect. In this episode, I'll be talking about preparing to travel, preparing to pack, and preparing to do something I've never ever done before, travel to Mexico. Now, I've traveled alone before. I've traveled to Germany. I've traveled around England. I've traveled to Ireland. But to travel to somewhere like Mexico, so far away, 11 hour flight, different language, I was quite nervous. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you have to make a decision quickly? Well, that's exactly what happened to me. At some point in 2018, August, I think it was, a friend of mine who always wanted to travel the world as a dancer was fortunate enough to land her dream job on a five-star cruise ship. This was a year-long contract on a world cruise. The cruise would also be travelling the coasts of South, Central and North America. As a member of the show ensemble, she was allowed to have up to six passengers for every three months of the cruise and asked me if I'd like to come on board. I was given an option of three cruises to choose from, South America, cruise the West Coast, or cruise Costa Rica and surrounding islands. Unfortunately, I missed out on the South American cruise because her family wanted to do that one. But it all worked out perfect as the cruise that I was about to embark on would be sailing to Puerto Vallarta in Mexico, two days at sea, San Diego, Catalina Island, Santa Barbara, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and returning in Cabo San Lucas in Mexico. It's February the 1st, my birthday. I'll go out with some friends in the city of Birmingham. I'm excited because the following day, I would be up at the crack of dawn to head to London Heathrow Airport to travel to Mexico City. So here I am at the airport. I had to take two flights. London Heathrow to Mexico City. Mexico City to Puerto Vallarta, where the ship was docked. Packing and arranging clothes for a cruise along the west coast of Central America in February can be very tricky. The weather in February in the UK at that particular time was below 5 Celsius. I decided to pack a few shorts, loads of t-shirts for Mexico, a few jumpers and an overcoat, and some thick layers for San Francisco. According to HolidayWeather.com, February in San Francisco is cold, wet and rainy season. So I flew with Air Mexico. I think the flight in total was £535 return. The hospitality was very nice and the interior on the plane was all stylish and modern. The duration of the flight was about 11 hours. I was fortunate enough to have three seats in the middle aisle, standard class, all to myself. The flight wasn't busy at all, with only three quarters of the plane full. I was absolutely exhausted from partying the night before on my birthday, so I decided to sleep for a while, but in fact slept for a majority of the flight. So I'm asleep. I smell something cooking. It smells like burritos. It's got to be burritos. I was already looking forward to the dishes and the lovely food that will be presented to me in Mexico. The flight attendant asks whether I would like a burrito or a roasted veggie enchilada casserole. I choose the burrito 
and it was quite delicious. Accompanied with a Carlota, a lemon dessert made with vanilla flavoured cookies. I was getting a taste of what's to come and I liked it. Ah, so I arrive, Mexico City. Me gusta, me gusta. Okay, my Spanish isn't that good, but I arrive, I'm here, and I'm excited. But it's about five in the morning. I had to collect my luggage, as Air Mexico's connection flight prices to Puerto Vallarta were extraordinarily high. I managed to find a flight from Mexico City to Puerto Vallarta with a Dutch company named Budget Air for £65 and a return to Mexico City for around the same price, totalling to £84 for each individual flight, including insurance. Mexico International Airport was, as you can imagine, huge. I arrived quite early and my connection was not for another six hours, which I deliberately booked in case of delays or immigration issues, you know. The only restaurant open at that time was Senor Frogs, a big franchise in Mexico. I've seen plenty of them on this journey. So, Senor Frogs it is. I stood in there with my big suitcase, <laughs> my backpack, and I struggled to figure out what was on the menu. I just didn't understand anything. Then I began to think, am I actually hungry? I didn't know whether I was hungry or tired. So I selected some fried chicken wings and some kind of celery thick soup, which, to be totally honest, was not impressive. You see, before travelling to Mexico, I watched a few YouTube videos on tourists visiting different parts of Mexico and trying the food, but this was not what I expected. It was warm and didn't seem fresh at all. But I guess it's 5am in the morning and it's probably food from yesterday. But the chicken wings were alright. Two hours before the flight, I had to get a shuttle train to Terminal 1, which was about 20 minutes away from the international terminal. I'm heading towards the shuttle train where I'm confronted by two female police officers looking very serious and have firearms. All they wanted was my passport and my boarding pass. The surrounding areas of Mexico City Airport is quite dangerous. The shuttle ride was very interesting and insightful. It was quite derelict, run down buildings with graffiti all over them and generally contrast to what I'd seen at the international part of the airport. But I arrive and it's much different. It's a different vibe. It's busy. It felt more like a, a big train station than an airport, but it was busy. All the commuters were around. It was eight o'clock. The shops were opening and I came across a Krispy Kreme donut shop. Of course I had to go in. I purchased a few, which were very cheap with each donut costing only the equivalent of 50p. Here I am embarking the small plane. It's 11am and I was still wearing my Thermal Nitec tracksuit, which was perfect for the first flight, but now I could feel the heat as we embarked the aeroplane. I found my seat. B1A, middle seat. Two young women approached, looking for where they were seated. I remember looking out the window, minding my own business, one of the women told me to move over. She told me to move to the window seat, which I did. At first I thought she had an attitude, but she turned out to be 
very friendly. She introduced me to her sister and herself as Paola. The flight attendant asked if we would like a drink and Paola suggested the three of us have a beer. So we did. Three cans of Sol. A light refreshing lager, perfect on a summer's day. Paola and her sister are from Porta Bayarita. When I first spoke to Paula, I said Porta Vallarta because that's how it's spelt with a V. But she told me how to pronounce the word properly, which is Bayarita. They had spent a few days in Mexico City, Six Flags theme park. She showed me a few pictures. We got along quite well, actually. She said to me, you will love Porta Bayarita. And that she goes to the beach four times a week. She said it's the most peaceful place in the world and she feels as though the mountains are hugging her when she relaxes on the beach. As we enjoyed our beer, I had the luxury of a beautiful view outside the window whilst exchanging discussion with Paola. Paola was beautiful. Long dark hair, stunning facial features and a beautiful attitude. Her demeanour was to match. Her sister was also beautiful. As I had never been to this part of the world, I could already feel the shift in energy on this second flight. One hour later and the pilot tells us to fasten our seatbelts and prepare for landing. We're descending. The air pressure really got to me. Swallowing didn't help. Nothing helped in fact. I just had to bear the pain. Once we landed, I yawned and yawned again. I tried and eventually I heard my ears squeak. I'm assuming that was the ear and I felt better about 10 minutes after. I say goodbye to Paula and her sister. After all this travelling and the contrast and humidity, all I could think about was needing a shower. The cruise ship was located just a mile away from the airport. $17 for a five minute journey is not bad. So I opted for it. The Phoenix Bond cruise liner was sparkling in the sunlight. I made my way through security. Strict measures, of course. X-ray machine. I had to put my suitcase through and all my luggage. I finally arrived after 20 hours of travelling. Here I am, ready to cruise the west coast of Central and North America. Stay tuned for the next episode where I explore the beaches, restaurants and sculptures in Puerto Vallarta. Be sure to follow me, Dane Fox, on Instagram, YouTube and Spotify. Hey, back to you now. Have you heard about matcha? It's this amazing powder made by grounding green tea leaves. It's 100% natural with nothing else added. It's great for boosting your metabolism, giving you long-lasting energy and even helps with burning fat. It's from Japan. Petite Squares, a Jamaican-based company, specialises in the distribution of this powder. They ship internationally to the US and the UK. To learn more, you can visit their website, petitesquares.com. Hi, my name is Dane Fox, and welcome to my podcast, where I share my journey around the globe. I'm broadcasting to you live from the United Kingdom, England, where it is currently 1300 hours. What time is it where you are? Let's take this journey together and let time zones intersect. Going It Alone, Episode 2 Life at Sea and Nudity. So I'm on the gangway, ready to get on the ship. It was about 20 metres long and 20 degrees steep. 
There were many people of colour on the ship. A large proportion were from the Philippines, who were all members of staff and done an incredible job. I mean, to the high standard and beyond. There was a resident singer from Cuba as well, who was part of a duo with his Russian wife, who played the accordion and piano. I was the only black passenger on board. I stated my name and displayed my cruise pass, which was delivered to me three weeks prior to coming on board. The receptionists had been waiting for me. I'm heading to my cabin, dragging along my large Timberland suitcase through the narrow passageway. The cabin was spacious, with a double bed, a porthole, a, a teddy bear made from towels, a bottle of rosé and some Ferrero Rochers on my table. Not bad at all. I thought I could get used to this. Anyway, I took a shower and then I headed back out of the ship to the gangway to meet my friend. So, we decided to head to Los Meritos Beach, one of the most popular beaches on the island. I'm wearing my shorts, a t-shirt, Ray-Ban glasses and a heavy DSLR camera over my head. The first thing I noticed when I got to the beach was the Millennium statue. Erected in 2001, a spiral sculpture with an array of historical figures from Mexico, symbolising hope and development. <laughs> I remember seeing a beautiful pelican perched at the top. There were so many on the beach. Very few birds attract like pelicans do. Soaring high in the sky, I eagerly took pictures. It seemed as though they were putting on a display for me. It was time for lunch. We looked around but decided to choose Signor Frogs again, as there were seats outside. I ordered a barbecue prawn burger stuffed with cheese. I mean, the picture made it for me. It looked amazing. But the texture was chewy and... I declined from continuing to try to eat it because it was absolutely foul. It was a laborious struggle. I thought, why am I bothering? I only had four hours before heading back to the ship, but it was lovely. 35 Celsius heat. I managed to absorb as much as possible before embarking the ship. Once I arrived on the ship, I was introduced to the show team, the show ensemble, consisting of eight singer-dancers. Phoenix is a German cruise liner. All passengers and staff are natively German-speaking. I was the only Englishman on board. My German was not so good, but the dancers accommodated me by speaking English, which I truly appreciated. Guten Tag, Dane! Guten Tag. Passengers would often open conversation in German. Heute ist sehr heiß, ja? Today is very hot. Uh, ja, I would respond and smile nervously. I often found myself saying, uh, Entschuldigung, my Deutsch is nicht gut, meaning, please meet me halfway and speak broken English. Please. Phoenix Artania had three restaurants, two of which had a waiter service. You don't have to worry if you're feeling peckish between meals, because there's always snacks on deck. Afternoon tea, midnight buffet, you'll never go hungry. To mix up your chances even more, there is also a captain's dinner where the menu gets a dressing up, similar to the passengers actually, as the mandatory attire is tuxedos for gentlemen and dresses for women, similar to a ball. The other restaurant is a buffet service, which is great as you have more freedom if you don't want the hassle of a, a weighted service. 
Dinner was served between 5.30 and 8pm. I went to the Four Seasons restaurant, which had a stellar service. Appetizers, grilled tomatoes, soup, uh, salmon, sushi. They had it all. Salads, Caesar, spinach, just to name a few. Main course meals, pasta, beef, chicken, even vegan options. All sorts. But my favourite was cheesecake. I love cheesecake. And that was what I had for dessert. You also had the option of having as many main course meals as you wanted, even desserts. The waiters would regularly fill your glass with wine or water. It was all free. I then head to the show lounge to watch a rock show with the music of Queen and Freddie Mercury. With a live seven-piece band and a very talented show ensemble, it was a terrific show with exceptional choreography. Most cruise ship shows are 50 minutes long, but this show was one hour. Which is fine, but it just seemed a tad too long and I noticed a small percentage of the audience leave the theatre. But that's understandable considering the busy, fun, activity-packed days that everyone has. They must be exhausted, as most of the passengers are retired. The days at sea start quite early. Breakfast, 7am. There was also a decent-sized gym on board too. Four treadmills, four bikes, and they had a really good aerobics programme. One afternoon, after lunch... I was in my cabin, almost falling asleep. I guess from all the excitement, or maybe I was still recovering from jet lag. I don't know. My cabin phone started to ring. I answered. Hey Dane, it's me Mario from the show team. Listen, we are all going to the spa. Want to join us? I replied. Uh, yeah, uh, who's going? Oh, um, just me and three of the dancers. Okay, yeah, sure. What time? Ten minutes. Sure. Okay. See you there. See, that's the great thing about cruise ships. Everything is convenient and not far away, all a five-minute distance from one another. So I arrive at the spa. It's so grand here. Mario is in the changing room. I say... Oh, Mario. So, it's only me and you? Oh, no, no. The dancers are in the woman's changing room. Oh, yes, of course, <laughs> I said. For some reason, I thought he was with the male dancers. I then put my shorts on and grabbed my towel. Mario laughs. <laughs> You're wearing shorts in the steam room? That's not the German way. We don't wear shorts in the spa. We go naked. I laughed embarrassingly. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I take a shower and then head to the steam room. So I'm heading towards the steam room. Towel wrapped around my waist. Past the hot stone chairs. The rainforest shower room. All looks nice. The infrared sauna looked empty. Maybe I should just head in there. I don't mind being naked alone. But no, I'm overthinking it. Outside the steam room was a towel rail with four towels hanging from it. I go in, stark naked. But fortunately, with the intensity of the steam, I see nothing. Only a seated area. I thought, okay, this isn't so bad. I did it. What was all the fuss about, right? After a while, a person decided to exit the steam room 
and didn't close the door properly and the steam faded away, like totally vanished. Suddenly, after talking for five minutes, I see the female dancers of Mario. I had nowhere else to look. I mean, it was a new experience for me. Sure, I was acting cool like it was a normal moment, but here we are, four of us, all having a civilised conversation, totally naked and... wet? There was a large variety of spa treatments including pamper packages and a men's MOT package, which I didn't explore, but consisted of a back massage and a revitalising facial. By the way, you don't have to go to the spa, there's plenty of activities on board, ballroom dance classes, cruise ship tours, informative guides for cruise destinations, it's all there really. Before lunch, or as an alternative, they have themed barbecues and parties depending on the destination where the cruise is heading or stationed. On my particular cruise, there was a Mexican band on board. They were super talented singers and brass players, which turned out to be a, a very lovely event. Now, most modern cruise ships are equipped with stabilisers that eliminate much of the motion that causes seasickness. I have been on numerous cruise ships cruising the Mediterranean Sea and never struggled with seasickness. However, on this ship, whether it was because it was a smaller ship, 231 metres in length with a capacity of 1,260 in comparison to, say, Royal Caribbean Adventure of the Seas with three times that amount, I'm not certain. But I struggled with seasickness. One of the dancers gave me some seasick tablets, which didn't work at all. She also offered me G-Organics ginger gum, which worked a treat. Ginger has long been an alternative medication to prevent motion sickness. According to Healthline.com, ginger is recommended for its stomach-setting effects, and it's a proven way to naturally treat nausea. Now, it's a well-known fact that cruising from West Mexico up to North America can be rough. The Pacific Ocean on the West Coast has a greater expanse than the Atlantic Ocean on the East Coast. But the much longer fetch in the Pacific Ocean allows the waves to receive more wind energy, and so they grow larger. My cabin was located at the front of the ship on the third floor of a total of eight levels. I felt every motion in that cabin. Unfortunately for me, on these two particular sea days, my only option was to stay in the middle of the ship where it felt most stable, so either the top level, outside, or near and above the reception area. Torturous? I know. But it was a rough sea day, which is common in February. One night, once all the entertainment was over, I decided to head to my cabin to go to sleep. The ship motion was really bothering me, and as I'd felt sick before... I had to instantly leave the cabin. I walked around the outskirts of the ship, just to get some fresh air. I could hear the sea roaring. I paced around for about an hour, until finally gaining the confidence to head back to my cabin, and finally fell asleep. For me, that was the last of the sea days, as the remainder of the cruise would be at a new port each day. The sea wasn't so bad after that experience. Well, I hope you enjoyed episode 2, but join me in episode 3, arriving in San Diego, Balboa Park, the longest serving naval aircraft carrier, and the people of this chilled city. If you would like to see some pictures from my travels, be sure to follow me on Instagram or YouTube. 
Music was provided by Paul Anthony Blanchard. Why don't you follow him on Instagram at Paul Media Creator. Going It Alone, Episode 3, San Diego. San Diego is known for its beaches, parks, and warm climate. Also, the renowned Balboa Park, as well as numerous art galleries. But mainly and historically the harbour home for the large naval fleet with USS Midway and aircraft carrier turned museum open to the public. After two full days at sea, I was now in the first port of North America. Each and all 400 passengers and about 300 crew individually would have to have a face check with the US officials who were very strict in their approach to ensuring all passengers disembarking the ship had no intention to leave with ulterior motives of not returning. I was told the previous year that a member of staff never returned to the ship. He was from the Philippines and the cruise was fined in the region of £50,000. I handed the officer my passport. He opened it, delicately. He moved to the second page, looking at the picture, and then to me. He looked like a pleasant man. Stern look on his face. He stared at me for about five seconds, to which I can only assume checking my comparison to the picture. And then he said, Thank you. Enjoy San Diego. It was 10am. 21 Celsius, and as I stepped off the ship, I see 15 metre high palm trees along the harbour. My plan was to head towards the Seaport Village. Seaport Village is a unique property with walkways and beautiful plazas along the seafront of San Diego's harbour. It was reminiscent of Puerto Vallarta, which I talk about in the first episode. Sea, sun, sand. There was a moment when I thought about what Poyola said. She said when she's on the beach, looking at the sea, she feels as though she's been hugged by the mountains. Now although there wasn't any mountains around in San Diego, it still had this feeling of windless, tranquil vibrations. As I walked along the harbour, there was a moment, I walked past an old couple, and I remember I was in a rush because I was excited and I was hungry. And I remember this man. I walked past. I was about 20 metres away. And I heard him say, They're so angry. Why are they so angry? They always look angry. What was it about my walk that threatened him that way? Did I have an angry bounce to my walk? Did I have an angry swagger to my walk? Who knows? But when I think of San Diego and walking along the harbour, I always remember that. So, as I continue to walk along the harbour, I come across Phil's Barbecue. I purchased a barbecue chicken burger with avocado, sweet potato fries, which was a treat. I then continued my walk, admiring the variation of the harbour's sea view. And across the way, I could see the, the city's high-rise buildings, with a little kiss of the summer breeze. After walking about 300 metres, I notice a huge naval carrier ship with fighter jets on. It was actually, in fact, a museum. A naval aircraft carrier, the largest museum devoted to carriers and naval aviation. 
It's the longest serving aircraft carrier of the 20th century, from 1945 to 1992. It was the only carrier to serve in the entire Cold War. It was enormous and quite impressive. As I head nearer to the carrier, I honestly couldn't believe what was in front of me. What was I seeing? It appeared to be a giant sailor with a giant woman in his arms. 25 feet high stood the kissing statue, officially known as Unconditional Surrender. The statue was designed after a famous photo was taken in Times Square from World War II of a Navy sailor kissing a nurse. It's a beautiful piece. It's so huge, it's impossible to take a picture up close view because it's enormous. But that didn't stop the flock of tourists posing by the feet of these giant human statues. They were everywhere. As I head nearer to the harbour, I come across a Quicksilver surfing shop. I step inside. There was so much cool stuff in there. The assistants were very welcoming and friendly too. Good afternoon, sir. Hi. If you need any help, just ask, said the assistant. Her accent was pretty cool. The shop was quite empty, and it seemed as though she was bored and wanted to talk. Where were you from? I said. San Diego. Mm -hmm. Where are you from? You sound like you're from England. Yeah, I'm from England. Um, Birmingham. Oh, cool. She began to file her nails. So I continued to look around. I think I spent about 30 minutes in that store. But it was quite big and in the end I purchased a snapback and a t-shirt. Just a souvenir as I was never sure when I would see this beautiful place by the coast again. I then came across a shop dedicated to socks. The sock shop. <laughs> Great idea, right? And at the time I was putting my own show together named The Swinging Foxes and thought it would be a good idea to purchase some fox socks for one of the dancers. So. I'm about to exit the sock shop when I hear a whistle. Hey, Dane! It's Mario and the dancers. Mario, how you doing? Hey, listen, we're going to Balboa Park. You want to come? Sure. So we make our way by public transport to Balboa Park, which was about three kilometers from the harbor. So we got a bus. I said to the driver, please, can you tell us when we arrive at Balboa Park? She said, yeah, no problem. Idris. I beg your pardon? You heard what I said. You're from England, right? Yeah, yeah. Take a seat. Enjoy the ride. So I take a seat. It was about a five minute journey. This is your stop. Balboa Park is on the right. We really had a moment. In this moment, I had a flash of a different conception in life, where I was living in San Diego, happily married and doing a nine to five. It was a cordial, mellow thought. But I brushed it off and said goodbye to the driver. We walked from Parts Boulevard past a war memorial building towards the park. It was simply beautiful. Balboa Park is steeped in the history of San Diego. Developed in 1868 by civic leaders, the total land is 1,200 acres. What I found fascinating was the architecture of the garden house, and the museum was totally stunning. 
Most of the arts organizations along Balboa Park's famous El Prado pedestrian walkway are housed in Spanish Renaissance-style buildings constructed for the 1915 exposition. It was one of the first times that this highly ornamented, flamboyant architectural style had ever been used in the United States. We browsed around and mostly stayed outside as the weather was 23 Celsius. Can you believe it? 23 Celsius in February. This is normal in San Diego. As it was now 4pm, we skipped the Arts Convention Center, Museum of Photographic Arts, History Center, Railroad Museum, House of Charm, and headed straight to the Botanical Building. The Botanical Building is one of the largest lath structures in the world. The view of the Botanical Building with the lily pond in the foreground is one of the most photographical scenes in the park, which totally explains why we were drawn to this grandeur design. I managed to get some really good photos Built for the 1915 exposition, along with the adjacent lily pond and lagoon, the historic building is one of the largest lath structures in the world. The building's plantings include more than 2,100 permanent plants, featuring collections of cycads, ferns, orchids, and many other tropical plants and palms. The botanical building also has some of the most vibrant seasonal flower displays. It was time to head back to the ship, as it was getting late. It was all a downhill journey, so we decided to walk. On the way back, it was lovely to see how modern the city and the surrounding areas were. I could only imagine living in a place like this. So clean. The streets were so clean. Another thing I noticed were scooters, motorised scooters, everywhere. Just placed on the sidewalks, unregardedly placed everywhere, like a school playground. Whose job is it to collect these things and put them back in their place? All the scooters are available to hire, all through an app named Lime. The click of a button and there you go, scooting around San Diego like a child. You click on the app, select an amount of time, and once that time expires, the machine shuts down, which explains why most of them are all lying around the city. In the next episode, I'll be talking about the southwest of Los Angeles. Catalina Island, William Wrigley, and all the attractions of this Californian Channel Island. Going it alone, episode four, Catalina Island. Santa Catalina Island, one of California's Channel Islands, lies southwest of Los Angeles. It's known for its wildlife, dive sites, and empty Orizaba, its highest peak. The resort town of Two Harbors lies to the north. To the south, in the city of Avalon, palm trees and cabanas line Descanso Beach. Avalon's circular art deco, Catalina Casino, is a cultural center with a movie theater, a ballroom, and a museum. It's also famous for William Wrigley, yes, the guy that invented chewing gum. Right, so, 8am, early morning. I have breakfast on the ship. That's the great thing about cruise ships. Although it can be expensive, you know, an expensive holiday, there's also the option to sustain resources by having breakfast on board, taking fruits, croissants in your backpack from the breakfast buffet. There was no better place than Catalina Island to utilise this. 
The island is about 22 miles length and eight miles in width, with very few shops to accommodate all the 400 passengers from the ship. My objective on this island was to capture some quality images, so I took my Lumix GH4 Panasonic camera with me, as my smartphone wasn't up to standard. I was excited, and as soon as I got off the ship, I was taking pictures, captured everything, surfboards, palm trees, and then I looked up and faintly could see a cottage at the top of a hill. It had the American flag waving from it. That's what caught my attention because it was so far away I could barely see this thing. The flag was waving in the wind. It was the former summer mansion and gardens of William Wrigley, the founder of the Wrigley Company. So this was my mission. I planned to head to the top to view it. That was my mission for the day. Head to the top of the hill. I disembarked the ship with some dancers, but I lost sight of them. I was too busy taking pictures. But they had other objectives and I decided to carry on my way. One of the first things that you'll notice on the island is the abundance of golf carts in a comical array of styles and colours, since Avalon is the only city in California authorised by the state to regulate the number of vehicles allowed on the streets. Yeah, there's a 17 year wait to have your car on the road. Unreal, right? There are no rental cars and only a handful of privately owned vehicles. Many homes have golf carts in their driveways. I remember feeling like I was on a, a big movie set or something, like I, like I was at Universal Studios. It was pretty cool. There's no Uber service either for all the Uber fans out there. But if you'd like to hire a golf cart, Catalina Transport Services, Wild Express vans are the go-to companies on the island. So I'm heading for the hill. There's a big cloud above. Looks like it might rain. And then I see a passenger from the ship. He's fairly old. He's got a camera around his neck and he's walking back to the ship. He says to me, it's about to rain. I will head back to where the shops are located. But I remained optimistic and continued. 20 minutes later, I, I'm not so sure if I'm heading in the correct way as I see no tourists on site. I'm lost. I see a six foot four man is big, broad, with a full head of white hair and a beard. He had such a peculiar smile like he knew I was lost or something. He had a slight stagger to his walk as well. He pointed me in the right direction and he said how beautiful it is at the top of the hill. He said, believe me, I've lived here for over 19 years and uh, the view still amazes me. You'll find it. So I continued. As I make my way up the spiraling steep hill, there was an array of golf buggies heading in the same direction, zooming past me every now and then. And then a golf cart carrying about 10 passengers went by. I thought, am I doing something wrong? Maybe I should have hired a golf buggy it was now 33 Celsius, and I'm hot, dripping, and watching these golf carts go by whilst I drip with sweat. But I had water in my backpack, and I stopped every now and then for a break. I stopped at a, a watching zone where tourists can view the beautiful island 
and it really was something else. I began to realise that <laughs> I'd been walking for over one hour and then a buggy was coasting down the hill. I hollered, hey, excuse me, prompting the driver to assist me. He slammed on the brakes, travelled about 70 metres and reversed. All I wanted was a picture with this beautiful view around me. I said, sorry, um, I was just wondering if you could just take a picture of me because uh, I'm, I'm alone. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, of course, we, we can do that. Can we do that? Yeah, yeah, of course, we, we can do that. Where do you want it? Where do you want it? Um, uh, just here, like, just to take a, just, you know. So I started posing really weird, but uh, I managed to get some pictures. They were actually a nice couple. The guy said he was from South Africa and raised in Sydney. He was with his girlfriend from California. They were very nice. And although it felt a bit weird to have pictures taken alone, I followed my intuition which is important for a solo traveller. <sighs> I continue up the hill. I could feel how steep the climb was becoming and I started to wonder if it would have been a, a wiser option to have just hired a golf buggy. Also, I was unsure of what time to return to the ship. Was it 1600 hours or 1700 hours? I started to feel a bit anxious. The reason I was anxious was because nine years earlier, I was in Athens on a cruise ship and I disembarked on my own. I was walking around, I went to KFC, and usually I would stay out the whole day, go for a walk and uh, sometimes uh, hire a bicycle. But on this occasion, I walked back to the ship. When I arrived, the cruise director was there, the staff captain, and they were really angry because the ship was about to depart. I was in a lot of trouble. They took away my ID, which meant I couldn't get off the ship for two days. That was rightly so. I should have got punished and I did. So, as you can imagine, I was worried about the time. But I see a passenger from the ship. He tells me not to worry. The ship doesn't leave until 1700 hours. Five o'clock. I trusted his words and continued. I'm here, finally. I've arrived at William Wrigley's summer house. As I approached this five acre cottage, it was evidently clear to see the wealth that this man generated in his 70 years. Born in Philadelphia, his family were Quakers of English descent. In 1891, he moved from Philadelphia to Chicago to pursue a career in business. He left home with $32, which is now $850. He set up a soap distribution company, baking powder, and also the renowned Wrigley's Chewing Gum, where he made his name and fortune. The summer cottage was beautiful, overlooking the island of Santa Catalina. Since 1985, the cottage has been leased and turned into a luxury hotel. Although descendants of William Wrigley still own the island and carry on his vision to create a world-class resort, for me, it was one of the most peaceful parts of America I ever visited. Small and blissful. The view from the top of the hill was, in one word, harmonious. If you ever go to Catalina Island, do nothing.
This island has a way of invoking profound relaxation. Maybe it's the smell of eucalyptus trees and wild fennel, both relaxing scents, according to aromatherapists. Whatever the reason, you may find yourself so chilled out that nothing is the only thing left to do. Thank you for joining me for this episode. In the next episode, I'll be going to San Francisco where I spent three days riding the historical cable carts, dog walking on Chrissy Field, sailing under and walking the Golden Gate Bridge, sky bars, live music venues, homeless complexities, the biggest Chinatown in the world, touring Alcatraz and an unexpected brawl in a bar. Music was provided by Paul Anthony Blanchard. Why don't you follow him on Instagram at Paul Media Creator. Day 4, San Francisco. In this episode, I'll be talking about the state of San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, Alcatraz, cable cars, Chinatown, San Francisco nightlife, and sky bars in this beautiful city. San Francisco is a state in California with a population of 897,000. It's the 13th largest city in the United States and the fourth largest in California behind Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Jose. It is in the northern part of California between the Pacific Ocean and the San Francisco Bay area surrounding it. San Francisco was founded in 1776 by Spanish conquerors. It was called Yerba Buena, which is Spanish for good herb. After the Mexican-American War, Yerba Buena was taken over by the United States. In 1848, it was renamed San Francisco and became a city in 1850. The city is famous for many internet companies, notably Wikipedia, Twitter, Uber, Eventbrite, Facebook, Dropbox, Bleacher Report, and Google, to name a few. And of course, being home to a large gay population. February the 9th, and we are sailing the significant stretch of the Pacific Ocean. I'm heading near San Francisco. But before, we must sail underneath the enormous Golden Gate Bridge. I'm excited. I can't even imagine what this will be like. I'm in my cabin, just arrived back from the gym. There's an announcement through the speakers in my cabin. It's the captain addressing all passengers that we will soon be nearing the Golden Gate Bridge in 20 minutes and that we must all not miss this fantastic experience. It's pretty breezy on the top deck, especially the front of the ship, but I head upstairs with my camera. So I arrive to the top deck and it's crowded. Everyone's there with their cameras, ready to get their perfect picture. I found myself taking pictures for people with their cameras, but no one knew how to work mine. Fortunately, the onboard photographer offered to assist and took a lovely picture of me with his Canon 5D. Heading nearer to the bridge and it's only when you get near that you realize just how enormous this structure is standing above the 300 feet deep sea. No engine noise, just the wind in your hair and the waves lapping against the sides of the ship. 
You can sit or stand on the deck. You're literally only a couple of feet above the water. Sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge. Need I say more? We went under the bridge in seconds. I was so delighted to have witnessed this, as many who travel to San Francisco would not get an opportunity for such pleasure and such joy. And to have a picture taken from that perspective was also a treat. Now a large majority, in fact I think all, even some of the workers, were out on the deck as the ship cruised into the port of San Francisco. To the left we see a small island, only under 90 metres away. It looks deserted and quiet. There is a large building on the opposite side of it. I couldn't make it out. This was in fact Alcatraz Island, where the one-time federal penitentiary is located. I'll talk about that later in this uh, audiobook, because that journey really was something. By the way, I, I didn't really want to mention this, but between 1937 and 2012, an estimated 1,600 bodies were recovered of people who had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge's death toll has since been surpassed only by the Nanjing Yangtze River Bridge in China. As I head nearer to the port of San Francisco, I see how vast and beautiful this city looks. What a view! I'm already excited to get off. The temperature was contrast to the heat I experienced two days ago in Mexico, from 29 Celsius down to 12 Celsius in two days. Boy, I felt it. It was the ship's first time to ever dock in the port of San Francisco, so the entertainment cruise director offered to take everyone for dinner. When I say everyone, I mean the uh, entertainment team, me included. <laughs> so we went to the Wipeout Bar Grill. We had a, a quintessential American fast food meal. Sweet potato fries, coconut fried shrimp, seven buffalo chicken wings, uh, pizza, you name it, we had it. I had the Impossible Burger, a vegan burger, all plant-based, with a bundle of ingredients. It was enormous. What was incredibly delicious was their milkshakes. The strawberry and vanilla options were nice, so I had two. It was pretty late once we finished our meal, about 8pm on a Sunday night. I was so excited to be in the city of San Francisco at night. It looked beautiful, but what I wanted to do was head into the city. So me and three of the dancers headed to the city on a bus. It was surreal. It was like something out of a movie. Like, you know, in the 60s. My objective was to take a ride on the celebrated cable cars. Basic Instinct, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Wedding Planner, Dirty Harry, Escape from Alcatraz, Sister Act 2, and The Pursuit of Happiness. Just a few movies that were filmed in the city and without doubt have a shot of the cable cars on a hill. With an array of ways to travel the city, train, cable cars and two subway systems, we opt for the bus. Well, the historic double-ended PCC streetcar made in 1936. As I stepped in, it was like stepping back in time, similar to a Forrest Gump or Driving Miss Daisy type of movie, you know. The interior was immaculate and well taken care of. Interesting fact actually, 5,000 plus PCC cars were built between 1936 and 1952. The bus journey was pretty cool. The interior was just immaculate. I couldn't believe how well maintained it was. I mean this has probably been built in the 60s and here I am feeling like I've gone back in time or something. I get off the bus and on the opposite side of the road 
I see a cable car. It looks like it's at a terminus and ready to go back up the hill. Perfect timing. Now, don't get the wrong impression. San Francisco is a stunning city, but to call it hilly is an understatement. It's the hilliest city in the USA and the second hilliest city in the world. I paid about $4 for the journey up the hill. It was fascinating to see the operator, driver. He had to manually operate the brake for every stop by hand. The carriage was operated by two controllers who wore thick rubber gloves. Me and the three dancers enjoyed the journey down the hill. I remember seeing a passenger hop off just outside her home. She shouted, Here, driver! She smiled. I thought, how cool would it be to live in this city? Imagine if that was me hopping off that spot, saying the same words. The journey down the 300 metre hill, on a busy street may I add, was fun. Me and the dancers, we dangled our legs over the edge of the carriage like children. We arrive at the bottom of the hill. What a journey. It was incredibly cold. I was wearing my jacket, but the layers just didn't seem to be enough. It was freezing, totally contrast to Mexico. So we decided to walk through the city and head back to the ship. On our way back to the ship, on the streets, from time to time, along the journey, I would see abandoned shopping trolleys. Sometimes empty ones with empty milk cartons. And other times, a bunch of random items bunched up on a side street as though someone had left it and would be returning to collect it. Then I see a middle-aged homeless woman pushing a trolley. She walked straight past us, didn't even acknowledge us, which was something I noticed more and more on my trip in San Francisco. The homeless just gracefully got on with their lives. Not one time did I see someone ask for any spare change. According to sfchronicles.com, San Francisco spends more than $300 million a year fighting homelessness. Yet it doesn't appear to be working with a failing mental health care system. The everyday issues on the streets has intensified. I remember walking past the block in the evening once the shops were closed for business that day and I saw a flock of homeless folks all neatly preparing their sleeping area in the arch beneath the doorway of each store. It now made sense why they carry their sleeping bags and flasks to stay warm and prepare for the night. I didn't want to head back to the ship, so that evening I headed to Cityscape, which is a sky bar in the city. Located 46 stories above the streets of Union Square, Cityscape is the tallest sky bar in San Francisco and offers a 360 view of the city, which was absolutely surreal. The city of San Francisco at night looks incredible. It's like looking up at the stars at a, a relatively intense magnitude. This is one of the most popular bars in the city. The ambience was really cool and the views of the city unreal. San Fran is a hilly city, we all know that. But the views at the sky bar enabled me to see for miles and miles. It looked as though it all curled up into the distance. To summarise the cityscape experience, I would say... The drinks are equally as persuasive as the view. It's a light hushed tone that drifts between the vaulted cases of liquor and relaxed yet jubilant atmosphere. I was eager to check the nightlife out in San Francisco. The bars, pubs, maybe, you know, have a few drinks, enjoy some live music. But I was alone. 
The dancers didn't fancy doing any of that. So I headed back to the ship with them. And then... Dane, how you doing? Hey guys, what's up? Hey, we're, we're heading into the town. You want to come? Uh, yeah. Where are you going? <laughs> where are we going? We don't even know where we're going. Okay, uh, I gave the dancers my bag and went out with those guys. The taxi was already waiting for us. So we headed to Bottom of the Hill, a live venue bar at the bottom of San Francisco's many hills. It was pretty quiet in there, a real country vibe. It also felt like a historic venue with a homely feel to it, showcasing acts from the local area and abroad. You know, the real deal. We're in the bar, we're enjoying the music, we're drinking, going outside, having a, the odd cigarette, you know, back inside again. The band were amazing, three-piece band, and, and they were playing all the numbers, all the covers. Bon Jovi, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, they even threw in a little bit of their own. I'm enjoying the music. A man walks in. He's about six foot two, wearing a black suit, black shades, and a saxophone hanging from his shoulder. I'm thinking, he must be a badass musician. I mean, to walk in there like that, on his own, I thought, yeah, he's up next. I also thought he would possibly be the main act. And he looked just like Marvin Gaye. I mean, I couldn't see his eyes, but the shades, he looked like Marvin Gaye. Now, bearing in mind, this place wasn't busy at all. There was no one dancing. Me and the technicians were just bouncing our heads to the music. This guy goes in front of the band and starts moving around like he's in the matrix or something. He was moving to a different tempo, a different melody in fact, than what the band was playing. And he didn't stop. It, it became like strange because he started to upstage the band. And this is when I thought, what's happening here? The band had already been playing for like one hour, maybe an hour and a half, and still no other act. The band take a break. Me and the technicians go outside for some fresh air. The guy with the saxophone comes out. Finally, he takes his shades off and his eyes are white. Like his pupils are white. He then put his shades back on. That was just a weird moment. But the band were outside and I wanted to have a little chat with them. I told them how good they are and they told me that they're session musicians and they go around doing gigs. I wasn't even aware, but the band wasn't getting paid for those gigs. They walked around the room after every set with a bucket, asking for cash for their services. It was actually strange because in England, you would usually see a band of that calibre being paid. I thought the bar would have paid them, but to be honest, the bar wasn't that busy. We're outside, the band go back in and start a third set. Outside is this guy with the saxophone, and I'm thinking, yeah. He's definitely not playing tonight. He may not even be a saxophone player. When I was at the bar, I did see one of the technicians constantly having a conversation with this apparent jazz musician. But when we were outside, it got a little bit heated. They were having a debate about black lives. But for some reason, I don't know how, the guy with the saxophone got very agitated, very fast. Who is this guy talking to? Huh? You know where we came from? Huh? Punk? Hey, calm down, I'm sorry. So I jump in. 
Listen, listen, it's okay, man. Let's, let's, let's all go back inside. He looks at me with his white eyes. And for a moment, I was really scared. But I just pretended that everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to be all right. And with that, he put his shades back on and walked away. He didn't even come back inside. And that was the end of that. Join me tomorrow in episode 5.2 of San Francisco. It was really sad to see so many homeless people. Even outside the bar, around the corner, there was a man just fast asleep on the floor, on the hard concrete. I really found that hard to digest. The technicians continued to party throughout the night, but I was tired. So I decided to order an Uber back to the ship. The taxis were particularly expensive at that time, so I selected Uber Paul, which was more cost effective. The Uber made its way up Filbert Street, one of the steepest hills in San Francisco. A large majority of cars in North America are automatic, but if you had to drive up those hills in manual, I think it would be extremely difficult, especially with a small engine. I found it fascinating how the resident cars were parked, all bunched up together excessively on steep hills, all curbed and crowded together. To prevent runaway vehicles, local law requires drivers to curb their wheels when parking on a grade greater than 3%, which is about 1.72 degrees. Since most of us don't carry a level to measure how steep a street is, it's a good idea to make it a habit every time you park on a hill in the state of San Francisco. Why is curbing your wheels so important? If your vehicle is hit, or if the transmission or parking brakes fail, curbing will cause your car's wheels to act as an additional safety defence. In such a scenario, your car will roll into the curb and not into the people, traffic or other objects. If you do not curb your wheels, you are subject to a fine. So, time for a late night snack and bed, preparing for the next day. The following day, I was fortunate enough to purchase tickets to head over to Alcatraz. Alcatraz Island. It's quite unusual for tickets to be readily available, as San Francisco has about 70,000 visitors each day, and as you can imagine, a majority of those people will want to check out Alcatraz. Some of the crew from the ship were also going, but before I headed for the boat, we decided to head over to Boudin Bakery on Fisherman's Wharf. Known for its sourdough bread, the bakery is recognised as the oldest continually operating business in San Francisco. It was established in 1849 by a family of master bakers from Burgundy, France. The interior of Boudin's is pretty cool, in the style of a dreamlike bread factory, with various styles of bread circulating the building 10 feet high on a trajectory conveyor belt. I had a clam chowder, their world-famous New England-style clam chowder cream-thick onion soup served in a sourdough bread in the shape of a bowl. It was quite unique, and it made the soup thick. Right, so we head over to the ferry port. The boat arrives. It was very small compared to the ship, as you can imagine. All the landscapes looked enormous, especially as we sailed nearer to Alcatraz Island. The federal prison of Alcatraz Island, in the chilly waters of California's San Francisco Bay, housed some of America's most difficult and dangerous felons during its years of operation from 1934 to 1963. 
Among those who served time at the maximum security facility were notorious gangster Al Scarface Capone and murderer Robert Birdman. No inmate ever successfully escaped the rock, as the prison was nicknamed, although more than a dozen known attempts were made over the years. After the prison was shut down due to high operating costs, the island was operated for almost two years by a group of Native American activists. So we head nearer to Alcatraz Island. As the boat pulls up, it's a surreal experience to think that this is a prison and it has so much history and was not open for a very long time. We got off the boat and we walked up a hill for about 200 meters. It was a weird feeling just to be in this place, just to be on the land of this historical prison. We go inside and it's very organized. All the tourists are there from different countries and there's translation packs. The dancers were German, so they chose Deutsch. I chose the English, of course. Put my headphones on and here I am, ready to tour around. They told us the tour should take about two to three hours. So as we walk in, the first thing I see is the showers, a massive open space, really giving you a grand scheme of how it would have been for the prisoners. A large area with four rows of 10 shower heads, 10 feet high. For some reason, I imagined all the prisoners to be big and tall, but the shower heads were just incredibly high above my head and I'm six foot three. The showers at Alcatraz were supplied with moderately hot water in order to hinder inmates from becoming acclimated to the freezing bay waters. It's been reported personal items carried by inmates have been found floating in the bay area. Also found was a life preserver with heavy teeth marks on the valve. It's a legendary prison with an interesting story and history. When I was a kid, I saw this place only in the movies. Of course, it was really interesting to visit here, but sitting here, this is a captivating excursion. To describe the experience of walking around the prison with the headphones and the information, it was like a movie, especially in the cells. Some cells had stuffed dolls, mannequins. A majority of the cells still had all the utensils, books, newspapers, everything to help your imagination understand their story. As I make my way around the prison, in the canteen, the halls, and just taking it all in, I toured the units and entered the cells that were previously occupied by Al Capone, Bernard Coy, Sam Shockley, and Frank Morris. To this day, Frank Morris, Clarence Anglin, and John Anglin remain the only people who have escaped Alcatraz and never been found. A disappearance that is one of the country's most notorious unsolved mysteries. It's approximately a two mile swim from Alcatraz Island to San Francisco. The swim is for relatively strong swimmers, equivalent of 140 lengths of a 25 yard pool. With that said though, the water surrounding Alcatraz is on the deeper end of the scale, but still, it's just an average depth of 43 feet. Over the years, there have been 14 known attempts to escape Alcatraz. 23 were captured, six were shot and killed during their attempted getaways. Two drowned and five went missing and were presumed drowned. The federal penitentiary at Alcatraz was shut down in 1963 because its operating expenses were much higher than those of the federal facilities at the time. The prison's island location meant all the food supplies had to be shipped in at a great expense. Furthermore, the isolated island buildings were beginning to crumble due to the exposure of the salty sea air. 
During nearly three decades, Alcatraz housed a total of 1,576 men. As I stood outside the garden of the canteen area, I looked across at San Francisco Island and thought, how many prisoners must have had this same picture and just wondered if they could swim two miles, they would make it to freedom. Finally, I finished my tour of Alcatraz. I head to the bottom of the hill where the boat's waiting. I see two of the dancers from the ship. And so we head back to San Francisco. It's about 5 p.m. We get back onto the land of San Francisco and we decide to make our way to the biggest Chinatown in the world. Since recording this, I have been fortunate enough to have visited China and had the most incredible food there. But prior to that, I always wanted to try dumplings and mice, so I came across Dim Sum Corner. It looked very modern. It only recently opened. The ambience was nice, the food menu looked mouth-watering, and it had a five-star rating on TripAdvisor. Dim Sum Corner is a San Francisco-based Chinese dim sum restaurant established in 2019. Their cooked-to-order dim sum dishes are prepared as delectable bite-sized portions served in bamboo steamer baskets as a healthier way of cooking and preserving more nutrients than other methods. Their dim sum can be enjoyed with traditional hot tea or contemporary baba milk or fruit teas. I couldn't wait to order, so I had classic shumai dumplings, shrimp dumplings and also some mouth-watering spicy wonton soup. It's probably the first time I've done this, but once I finished my meal, I ordered the same thing again. Dim sum wasn't even expensive, it was like $4 for each meal. As much as the meals were small, $4 was not that much in comparison to a restaurant across the road. It's the final day in San Francisco and the ship would be departing at 1600 hours. So I get a taxi to the beach, Creasy Field in fact. My plan was to walk the beach towards the beautiful, enormous Golden Gate Bridge. The cab driver was very helpful almost like a tour guide. He told me that his grandfather and his father was in the military and pointed out where all the ranks were stationed. With its breathtaking San Francisco Bay views, easy hiking, welcoming beaches and picnic areas and wild open spaces, Creasy Field is a recreational paradise that has long been discovered by locals. The site has a rich history as an army airfield and later as a busy industrial area for the military. Today, nature lovers flock to Creasyfield Marsh, a birdwatching hotspot. Locals and visitors alike run, stroll and cycle along the Bay Trail to the iconic Golden Gate Bridge. Creasyfield's 100 acres are bookened by two stunning picnic destinations. Enjoyed by millions each year, the northern waterfront is the park's front door. The driver dropped me off about 5 kilometres, maybe 7 kilometres away from the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, walk along the beach, you'll love it. From where I was standing, the bridge looked tiny. I knew I had time, six hours, to head to the bridge and back, and I thought it was a safe idea to go to the toilet. There was one nearby, so I'll go in. It's pretty dull. I don't see anyone around. I'm taking a leak, and then I hear a little sound. I look behind, there's a guy. He's looking into a mirror, he's washing his hands, and then he starts to wash his face, but he looks out of it. I don't know if he was on drugs or had been partying the night before, but he really looked out of it. So I zipped my flies up. I want to wash my hands, but his behaviour was a bit weird. He looks in the reflection of the mirror. He doesn't even turn around. And he says, excuse me, bro, you got a comb? I was like, no, no, sorry, dude. 
and I was out of there. It was a real weird experience. He was just looking in the mirror at his face like he didn't recognise who he was. He just kept washing his face. And that's another thing I noticed in San Francisco. Wherever I went, I could always smell cannabis everywhere. I'm walking on the sand and it wasn't so easy as the wind was quite strong. And then I see two women walking about seven dogs. I wanted a picture similar to Catalina Island. I can't really take a selfie. It's pretty sad. First, we started to talk. We were speaking and they heard my accent and said, where are you from? They could tell I was from England. One of the women told me her brother's studying media in London. She said to me, do you want a picture? Do you want me to take a picture? I said, uh, we, we can take a picture if you want. Yeah. Uh, you want a picture with all the dogs? Um, yeah. But one dog in particular came up to me. It was a cocker spaniel. I picked her up and she was so calm and pleasant. Animals have a way like that. So we have a picture with the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. And that was a memorable moment. As I strolled along the beach and made my way towards the Golden Gate Bridge, I see people jogging, particularly dog walking. Every other person had a dog. I could see why a place like this is so attractive to a large majority of people. Simply beautiful. It was a Sunday morning and everybody seemed relatively happy. It had a nice ambience, something I could imagine myself doing one day. Walking along Chrissy Field Beach with my Cocker Spaniel, living the life in San Francisco. I hope you enjoyed listening to my time in San Francisco and I hope one day you'll do the same thing and travel to these beautiful places. The next episode is a double whammy. A brief spell in Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, shooting a 9mm gun, losing my passport and disturbing a couple's Valentine romance. Join me on the next episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 6 of Going It Alone. Hi, I'm Dane Fox, and welcome to my podcast, where I share my journey from around the globe. Today I'm broadcasting to you live from the United Kingdom, England, where it is currently 4pm. What time is it where you are? Let's take this journey together, and let time zones intersect. I'm sitting at my desk, window open. The birds are singing on this beautiful afternoon. I'm sipping on a golden milk latte. The turmeric ginger honey touches my lip as the scent lingers and transports me to Hong Kong, where I was actually about two years ago. The hotness of this drink is nothing compared to the sweltering heat of this country. Buckets of sweat drenched down my t-shirt 
as my driver proceeded to weave in and out of the lanes trying to avoid rush hour traffic en route to the Tain Tan Buddha. Okay, so we're set to arrive in Los Angeles on the 14th of February, Valentine's Day. But before that, on the 13th of February, we head to Santa Barbara. We were heading for Santa Barbara and we arrived about two o'clock, but the sea was so rough that we had to tender. Now, when a ship has to tender, it means it can't dock. So it's literally just floating in the water. And then they use the lifeboats to transport passengers to the shore. Not many people chose to do this, but me and uh, some of the other guys were quite adventurous and, and we decided to go over. Although it was shaky, it was fun. One of the guests in front of me, she was really scared of the highs and lows, which me and Manuel, one of the show team members, found quite amusing. <laughs> she was absolutely panicking. The captain said that all passengers will have only an hour in Santa Barbara, so I thought, I don't want to miss seeing this place. It looked beautiful. Although it was raining, I thought, why not? Let's, let's get off the ship and let's check this place out for an hour. I also seen a surfer standing partially in the sea, checking the waves. I can only assume he was planning to surf that day. Beautiful terracotta roof detached houses and Chevrolet vehicles. This was Santa Barbara. This place reminded me of something I'd seen on TV growing up. So yeah, we looked around Santa Barbara just a little bit. Beautiful place, absolutely beautiful place. Went to a shop and bought some of my favourite American chocolate bars, Twinkies, stuff like that. Walked about two kilometres and then headed back onto the ship. And that was all I saw of Santa Barbara. But I would love to go back to that place because it's beautiful. Uh, the architecture of the buildings. It's a place that you would want to live in. The port of Los Angeles is home to two separate cruise terminals. San Pedro's World Center, the second busiest passenger port of call on the West Coast, and the Long Beach Cruise Terminal. At the World Cruise Center, major cruise lines embark to destinations such as Baja, California, Hawaii, Alaska, and the Panama Canal, and it welcomes roughly 100 cruises. The terminal is about a 30-minute drive from Los Angeles International Airport. Roughly within a 13-minute walk, there are dozens of restaurants from English pub fairs to Thai food and shops at the Los Angeles waterfront. Further down the harbour, roughly about a 20-minute walk, is a mix of souvenir and gift shops. We arrive in Los Angeles. It's 9am. Torrential rain, cloudy and just miserable. And we ducked about five miles from anywhere decent enough to have a coffee. Oh, did I say it was also Valentine's Day? Dennis, the sound technician, suggested the night before that he wanted to go shooting. Yes, real gun shooting. And that he found a place online where you only need a passport for validity to shoot on the day. I quickly said, yes, great, let's do it. But really, I was a little bit nervous, but excited at the same time. I thought it would be an excellent opportunity to gain an insight into the habitual side of North America. We got an Uber and headed seven miles east of LA. We were heading for sharpshooters, a shooting range which only has guns and targets. 
Sharpshooters was an indoor target range and a gun shop, but when we arrived it appeared to be closed. It was located in a big industrial unit and it didn't appear to look like the correct place. I asked Dennis if he was sure this was the correct place. He said yeah. He gave them a call, they answered and said they'll be open in one hour. So we walked about 200 metres nearby Starbucks. What strikes me is that you never see people walk further than 100 metres. They mostly use automobiles. The roads are extremely wide and all have a countdown of 25 seconds to cross. I felt quite anxious crossing as we needed to cross about three roads in order to travel about 150 metres from the shoot range to the other side of the road. Heading over to Starbucks, it looked empty. There were no cars outside, it absolutely looked deserted. But once going inside, it was packed. <laughs> there was nowhere to sit. So uh, we ordered our, um, well, I got a hot chocolate. Um, my friends got a, uh, I think they got coffee and uh, chai tea. And um, we decided to head back slowly to the shooting range. Once arriving back at the shooting range, we were pleasantly greeted by a father and son, the owners of the business. The son, in his 30s, was very youthful and trained us how to hold the gun and how to use it. Pretty scary. He had us line up and he gave us each a 9mm gun. Dennis, me and one of the dancers, who looked pretty confident, had thorough training on how to handle and how to shoot a real gun. It was a weird feeling holding the weight of a real gun. It gave me an insight into how powerful this thing was. I carefully listened to the instructions. I was nervous, I'm not going to lie. But the training was strict and rather scary. I wondered, what have I got myself into? I remember asking him, how many bullets go into a gun at one time? And he said, oh, only ten. I thought he would have said something like two or something. <laughs> so he said, okay, you guys, listen. When you're holding the gun, you do not put your finger on the trigger. Okay, because if, you, if you're walking down the street and, and you put your finger on that trigger, someone's going to pull out. Okay? When he said that, I was very, very nervous. My heart was beating quite fast, in fact. Because here we are with real guns. In any given moment, any of us could just turn around and, and shoot someone. We could have even shot him, the shopkeeper. And this was what was running through my mind. Now, what was interesting was me and Dennis were confident. We was looking forward. We were like two young boys with toys. You know, we were holding this gun and... and I could feel the adrenaline from Dennis and I was just acting really that I, I was looking forward to this. But really I was very, very subdued, very careful. The dancer who was with us, she was probably the best. She learnt the instructions very, very well. The instructor even said, you know what? You know who's the best here out of the three of you? This woman right here. You know why? Because she's listened to everything that I have told her. Everything. And you guys, listen carefully. When you go in there, he's referring to the shooting range. When you go in there, 
you make sure that you're very, very careful, okay? When he's shooting, you stand back, okay? I'm like, yeah, right, and vice versa. How about you, miss? And she was like, nope, I'm not shooting. She didn't shoot. Instead, it was just me and Dennis that decided to get a bag of bullets and, and go inside this driving shooting range. Once we received our training, we received two 9mm pistols. Then we had the option to choose from 15 target sheets. You know, the popular circle dart target, the military man target, the torso. Me and Dennis were very nervous but confident with the training we received. We were extra careful when loading the gun. The guy says, right, enjoy yourself guys. And we head through. We head through with our protective glasses, our guns and our bullets. The dancer stood on the other side of the glass looking absolutely terrified. She later told me that she was terrified because she said, if I had got shot, what would she tell my mother? This was the only thing that was going through her head. The room consisted of about eight small 25 meter lanes with a small hub for each one so you could easily freely see the other shooters. Two lanes to my right was a man in a suit. He looked like he'd just come to shoot on his lunch break or something. He had a grey suit, his protective glasses and a lunchbox. And I just thought, okay, back home, you know, somebody would go to a driving range and maybe uh, play a bit of golf. But here, people go shooting on their lunch break. It's like a totally different culture. So I was fascinated by that. Two lanes to my right were two young men of Hispanic, African-American heritage, I feel. It doesn't matter, but I'm just trying to paint a picture, you know. I felt relaxed. It, it felt normal there. It felt normal. Apart from we had real guns and uh, yeah, <laughs> let's do this. It was time to put the training to the test. Of course, Dennis, being the man who decided to come to this place, decides to go first. I'm happy. I'm happy to watch him go first. Now he's set up, he loads the gun, uh, presses the wire with the target man, the torso. He lines up. I never forget when he when he shot that gun, the, the, the sound that came from it, it sounded thick and so loud. You could hear the power in the gun. He had a good shot, but it probably took about five seconds after shooting it to actually see where the bullet went. It's my turn. I set up. I can feel the dancer looking through the glass at me. She's absolutely terrified. And it made me feel a little bit nervous too because I just knew that she didn't want to be there. She was very nervous. I must admit it was throwing me a little bit, but I needed to do this and I, I wanted to do this. I carefully took my time. As the trainer instructed us not to rush and not to use the tip of our index finger too much because the harder you pull the trigger, the most likely you're not gonna hit the target. I line up, I prepare and I pull the trigger. The power and the incredible explosion of the bullet out of the barrel was something I never felt before. Something I never felt before. I cannot describe it. 
the power of this thing, a nine millimeter gun. This is probably the smallest gun there, but the power of this thing, really, if you don't hold that thing firmly, it could go anywhere. It's very scary, but me and Dennis, we got more confident and we still had 25 bullets each. So we were there for another, let's say 20 minutes. Time did go quite fast, <laughs> or maybe we were there longer, but once our bullets were finished, Dennis decided to stay. He wanted to stay. My friend, she wanted to leave. She really wanted to go. I thought, okay, well, we all have to stay together. You know, we're in Los Angeles. Uh, she needed to go back to the ship anyway. She had to rehearse for a show that evening. So I decided to, to leave. As I was walking out, there was a man with a sawn off shotgun. Again, he had a lunchbox next to him. This guy was sitting on a chair, sawn off shotgun, and the velocity and power of this thing. I mean, I was just waiting for him to shoot. We stood there for about one minute, waiting for him to hit his target. I cannot describe the sound of that thing. And remember, we have ear protection. So Dennis decides to stay. He buys another 50 bullets for his nine millimeter gun. And me and the dancer decide to order an Uber. I took care of it. I'm checking my phone. It says Uber will arrive in five minutes. So cool. It said I should be expecting a black Toyota. So cool, okay. So I go to the main reception area just to get a better signal. But the dancer's nowhere in sight. Now I'm worried. I'm like, where is she? She was waiting outside because she was panicking so much. It threw me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. My phone signal was really bad. So I waited outside. I got a message from Uber to say that the car had arrived. A black Toyota. And I seen a black Toyota. So I, I jumped in it. I jumped into the back. And when I jumped in the back, I seen a man and a woman. And in between them, a bunch of flowers. It took me 10 seconds to realize, but it wasn't the Uber. It was a couple celebrating Valentine's Day. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. I was like, I I'm sorry, guys. Sorry. And I was out of that car quicker than you could think of. How embarrassing. I mean, like I've jumped in the back of someone's car at a shooting range. He could have easily just turned around and shot me in the face. Surely. But he didn't and they smiled and I came out of the car and then we, we stood and waited again for the taxi which arrived eventually and we set off and I headed to a shopping mall because I thought right retail therapy this is what I need. So we finally get in the Uber, we head back to the cruise port, the dancer gets off to go and rehearse and I asked the driver to take me to the nearest shopping mall, the best shopping mall. I asked the driver to take me to the Beverly Center, but the Beverly Center was about an hour away in downtown LA. He said, I know a better shopping mall than the Beverly Center. How about Delamo Fashion Center? At first I thought, a fashion center? I just want to go to a shopping mall. But he reassured me that it was actually a shopping mall and not a fashion center. It had everything there, Macy's, the lot, so many stalls. It was a dream for anybody that loves to shop. Delamo Fashion Center has evolved from an 
amalgamation of several developments on the eastern side of the intersection of Hawthorne Boulevard and Carson Street. You probably won't know any of those names, but it actually was at one stage the largest shopping mall in the United States between 1981 to 1992. So I arrive at the fashion center. Uh, where do I start? The driver drops me off at Macy's. I'm like, right, okay, here we go. Let's let's look at this place. So I head inside and it's enormous. Where do I start? At the time, I remember thinking I want to buy things that are not available in the UK. So I purchased a lot of Jordan goods. I also went to the jelly bean factory and bought all kinds of jelly beans. I mean, Dr. Pepper flavored jelly beans, donut flavored jelly beans, and they all tasted exactly like that. I probably spent about two hours in the shopping mall and then I was conscious of the time and decided to head back to the cruise port. So I ordered an Uber. What I like in particular is the Uber share option, which can be very cost saving. It all adds up. Although I was in the passenger seat with the driver, there was another passenger in the back seat who was very quiet. Interesting to have a third party in the car who had no connection to me or the driver. That was very interesting. So I'm back at the cruise port. The security, I don't know why, but they really were very strange. I mean, it was the evening and they're wearing sunglasses. I'm at the terminal. I have all my shopping bags. I put them through the x-ray machine, get searched down. And as I'm walking to embark the ship, I noticed there was an old couple because the cruise ship had a, quite a lot of old people on it who were retired, of course. This man in particular had a, uh, an artificial leg and the security were having difficulty in understanding why the alarm kept on beeping. I watched this unfold for about two minutes and they knew that he had an artificial leg but still they were telling him to empty his pockets and huh? all sorts and his wife looked distressed and I just found it all really weird that they were giving this old man and I mean he was probably in his 80s and were giving him such a hard time. I just found it really strange that they would do that, you know, very, very strange. They were just doing their job a little bit too much. Like we've all come off the ship to have a look around LA and we're all getting back onto the same ship. It was his leg. The guy had a metal leg. And that was the only thing I didn't like. Uh, the security at the ports in the West Coast of America was uh, just far too strict for my liking. I mean, they were much more friendly and cooperative in Mexico, in fact. So I'm on the ship, straight to the cabin, unpack all my goods, my shopping, my sweets, Tootsie Roll, all of these things that I've bought, Jordan t-shirts, everything. And then the ship sails. We go for a meal, and then Dennis, who I went shooting with, he comes up to me, he says, I've got something for you. I'm like, what? <laughs> what, you got a bullet? <laughs> He's like, no, your passport. I'm like, oh my God. I left my passport at the shooting range. Oh my God, Dennis. Dennis was most of the time hungover from drinking on the ship in the evenings. So for him to remember my passport, that was just, uh, I was very lucky. I was very lucky because the next day when we arrived back 
in Mexico, I would be departing the ship to fly back to London. So I needed my passport. I 100% would not have been going home because there's no way that passport would have made it from Los Angeles to Mexico in two days. I used my passport, whereas the other guys, they were staying on the ship for another two months. But whoa, how lucky was I? Join me in the final episode of Going It Alone, the final port, Cabo San Lucas, a boat taxi to Playa del Amor Beach, dancing with an iguana, enjoying the exotic cuisines, walking on the sand that felt like brown sugar. I mean, the sand was so thick. Join me in my last episode of Going It Alone. I hope you're enjoying my podcast. Or why don't you check me out on Instagram, maybe? Dane Fox. Have a great day.